we have Mark chapter 5 marked in our Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, if we didn't believe that there was something here for us to know, to understand, we wouldn't be here. We have come, Lord, because we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Unlike so many that we know, unlike so many maybe in our families, where we work, in our neighborhoods, who could care less about right and wrong and care more about what's in it for me. Lord, we are here saying we care. Not only do we care, but we hunger to know and to do the right things, the things that please you. We hunger to be your servants, Lord, to let your life be lived out through ours, that we would submit and yield our lives completely to you. As we think about what Paul wrote in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. Lord, we want that not to just be academic, but to be our reality, that we live because you live through us. So Lord, we just long to see you in the pages of Scripture, to to fall deeper in love with one we have not personally seen. And so open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear the word. May Satan not steal it from our hearts because they're hard. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. We have uh, Mark chapter 5 in front of us as we make our way through the gospel of Mark, discovering Jesus in the pages thereof. Maybe some of you discovering him for the first time. Maybe you've not read the Bible. You've heard bits and pieces here and there. And, and as we read through it verse by verse, uh, this may be the first time you've, you've sort of read these these accounts of the life of Jesus, uh, we've watched him calm, uh, really rebuke the wind, tell the wind uh, and the sea to be muzzled, his power over, over those things. We've seen his power regarding things of the spiritual realm over uh, the demonic forces in the world, and we believe that they do exist, and uh, we've seen that, so his power over those things. And we come today to uh, Matthew 5, excuse me, Mark 5.21, and there are actually two stories interwoven uh, and they're meant to be interwoven. It, it's the way it happened, and that's the way life happens, isn't it? That's, life is kind of is interwoven, isn't it? And things don't just happen in isolation. We live, and, and maybe on your way here, something happened, or you go this place or that place, and life just continues to happen and unfold. And so in, in this is so interesting, the way that uh, these two stories have, are, are paralleled to one another. And I think one of the things we'll learn as we go through this is that uh, there's sometimes we find comfort in things being the same. I mean, maybe you are like, we know people don't like change. I like things to be predictable. I like things to be consistent. And so uh, that, that's one thing we struggle with. And sometimes we want God to be that way. We want God to be predictable and consistent. Always do things the same way. Now, remember, God's character is unchanging. So in terms of who God is, he, he, he will be consistent and predictable because his character he can't deny himself he always has to be who he is he will always love he will always forgive there's no situation where you would come to god and, and ask for forgiveness and he, and he said you know i don't really feel like it today you know check with me tomorrow i had a bad day yesterday i'm a little tired a little cranky but that, this is this is not god that's not how god is but when it comes to how he does what he does Oftentimes we see 
him work in very different ways to accomplish the same goal, especially when it comes to the area of healing. We'd like God to always do it the same way. When it comes to being saved, we'd like God to always do it the same way. It's always by, by grace through faith, but how you encounter God might be different. For me, it was alone in a parking lot. For some of you, it was at a Billy Graham crusade. It's different. And so these two stories meant to be interwoven to show us that that God works in, in many, many different ways in different people's lives. And so Jesus had been on the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and now he's, he cast the demons into the pigs from those two guys he met. One guy was the spokesperson, demon-possessed, insane, uh, and, and he, Jesus heals him. He casts out the demon, and then the guy is sitting there clothed in his right mind. The, the demons are cast into the pigs who go and then jump into the water and kill themselves. You remember the story from last week. Well, they said, Jesus, you're too much for us. Like, we don't know who you are. We're not sure about all this, but get out of here because you make us nervous. You scare us with what you're doing. So Jesus left there uh, after he'd healed this guy who, who wanted to keep traveling with him. Um, Jesus sent him to be an evangelist and headed back. Verse 21 tells us when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, back to the area of Capernaum where it started, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. Now let's just stop there for a second. So he comes back over. The, Mark has made us uh, very aware of the pressures of ministry. And I say that uh, the pressures, meaning he was constantly pressured by people. He was surrounded by crowds all the time, like a, like a rock star with the paparazzi around them. Always always crowded by people, people always touching him and, and pressing in on him and wanting to be close to him and, and jostling for position because he'd been healing so many. And so he comes back over. Another gospel writer tells us the crowd was waiting for him there. They had been waiting for him to come back. And so now he comes back and there's the spotlight again for Mark is this one man. Uh, he, we know his name, which we don't always get to know. A lot of times the stories unfold and we don't know who the name of the person is. But this time we know his name is Jairus, and he is a ruler of the synagogue, probably the synagogue in Capernaum. That meant that he had an official position, uh, not a theological one. He wasn't in charge of, of the teaching in terms of doing the teaching, but he would be in charge of the organization of the worship service. He would be in charge of the care of the facility, the care for the scrolls that were there, and determining who would be teaching that day. He was sort of uh, an administrator of the life of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So we don't know, um, you know, much other, uh, other information about him, but we do know he had a daughter. And that's what we read, that's what brings him to Jesus, is, is his daughter. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So we don't know uh, what has happened. Uh, we know later on Mark tells us that she is 12 years old. Luke tells us she is his only daughter. We don't know if she's his only child, but we do know she is his only daughter and she is 12 years old. And we all know the experience, maybe some uh, more than others, but we all know to some degree the experience of, of having a sick child. We don't know if she had a high fever, if she'd slipped into a coma. We know that, there was, that no one has been able to do anything for her, and so she has gotten 
uh, very sick, and now is lies on the cusp of death, on the cusp of death there in their house. And, uh, and you know that feeling. I mean, we have kids, and you know when you watch your kid and, and they're sick, and, and whether it's the flu or a head cold or something more serious, you know that feeling of I would give anything to trade places with you, and I would go anywhere and do anything to relieve you from your suffering. You know that, parents, don't you? That's the heart of God, isn't it? That's the heart of God in us, that we look at our children suffering and we say, we don't want you to suffer. That's the heart God has for us in our lives. And so he, uh, this, now I don't, we don't know much about his theology. We, we know that he's got a primary place in the synagogue. It's quite likely he was a Pharisee of some sort. Uh, you, we know the position of the Pharisees toward Jesus, right? They had been very negative toward him. They had been very envious of him. Jesus had confronted them about their traditions, their practices. He had pointed out some problems, and it had made them very angry. So Jesus was in many ways not welcome in the synagogues, had been run out of the synagogues, and had, they were actually wanting to kill him. And so I don't know. My guess is that Jairus probably had that same attitude toward Jesus until it involved his family, until his need involved his daughter. And it's funny how I've seen people, I've met people that can hold on to a theological position. Well, I don't believe in this. Well, I don't believe in that. And and you hold on to it mentally or intellectually, and then all of a sudden, something happens to you. Like, you might have the belief, well, it's only those really evil people that get sick or struggle. Us good people, us righteous people, you know, you could be self-righteous like that. And then, until the problem comes knocking on your door, and all of a sudden, your theology changes. And so I imagine that uh, when this guy's, you know, maybe he was very, maybe they'd have dinner time and he would talk about, oh, this Jesus, this troublemaker. I wish we could just get rid of him. You know, some of the guys at the office, they're planning to kill him. You know, let's pray for them. This guy, he's just trouble. But now his daughter's sick and he knows, they know, and they admitted and they saw that Jesus could heal. And so somehow the walls come down, the barriers come down, and this guy comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And I find that to be, I find people... We'll be very negative about Jesus. I meet him at the coffee shop, meet him at a restaurant, wherever, and we'll talk about faith, we'll talk about church. Nah, I don't want nothing to do with church until they got a, a serious problem in their family, until somebody is hurting or somebody's sick or somebody dies, and then all of a sudden they're knocking on the door going, hey, tell me more about this Jesus you were telling me about. Life changes, and sometimes that changes your perspective on God. And so he comes, and he falls at his feet, uh, and, and he says, my little daughter... My only daughter, she's 12 years old, and she is on the cusp of dying. Jesus, you are my only hope. Come. So he, his theology says Jesus has to come and put his hands on her. He could speak it from there, and she could live. But he says, come with me. Come to my house, and, and so that you can heal my daughter, and she'll live. And so Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So Jesus didn't say, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll just heal her from right here. Right here. He's done that before. But he goes together with Jairus to his house. Now, on the way, another woman comes into play here. They're they're being, the crowd is going. You can imagine in your mind this whole mass of people heading to Jairus' house, just following Jesus. Verse 25 says, Now a certain woman, we do not know her name. We do not know her age. We do not know about her family specifically. But this is what we know. She has a very, very... Uh, traumatic and life-changing medical condition 
Your Bible might say a flow of blood, or if you'd read the King James, an issue of blood. She had some sort of menstrual hemorrhaging that was ongoing. And guess how long it had lasted? What's it say right there in verse 25? It had been going on for how many years? Twelve years. You see the, the connection between the age of the daughter? As long as the daughter has been alive, this woman has been effectually dead. Now, she's still alive physically, but this issue for her religiously, if you read Leviticus 25, excuse me, Leviticus 15, I'll read this to you. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the, the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, I'd say 12 years is a little long. All the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. So just as she would have her menstrual cycle normally and be unclean during that time, this would be her whole life. As long as she was bleeding, that's how long she would be considered unclean. And again, to us, it's hard to imagine culturally what that does. Religiously, she could not participate. Anybody that touched her was then made unclean. Uh, She was effectively isolated religiously, But more so, more damaging, is she was isolated socially. And so I have a video. Again, if you would bring the lights down, those of you that that might want a better perspective, you can just kind of get up and kind of squeeze over that way if you want to. This is a, uh, I'm not a big video guy, but occasionally I want to give you a window into uh, into this culture by maybe showing you a similar culture. The the woman you're going to see, the women in this video, it comes from a documentary called A Walk to Beautiful, We're going to put a link to it on our website. You can watch it for free uh, online. It's a 55-minute documentary, not about menstrual bleeding, um, but about uh, women that have uh, fistula, which means that they end up having... uh, In Africa, uh, there's a lot of malnutrition. So women are off... They look like little girls. You might have a 25-year-old girl. Matter of fact, I think in the video, the girl is 25 years old, but she looks like she could be 14. They're very small, and then they get married young and get pregnant young, and their body is just not, because of the malnutrition, because of the size, their body is just not able to um, fit the baby coming out. So they'll go into labor, and they'll try to have the baby, but the baby often dies. And this girl, you'll see that they had to remove the baby from her womb uh, piece by piece. And she'll, she'll say that in the video, uh, because there's no other way. And so uh, what happens is as the head of the baby is pressing against the pelvis, uh, it causes tissue to die. And the tissue allows then a connection uh, for urine to leak continually uh, out of the bladder and down the leg. And so you can imagine what this produces socially. And I will show you just from a very real life of this woman uh, in, the, in the few bits of this documentary. So if we could pull, pull that up. Just wanted to give you guys a sense of, of what this woman uh, might have been feeling as you hear and see the commentary uh, from the, uh, the, women, uh, the woman in this video. Uh, that is likely the same type of feeling that this woman in our story had. And it's uh, hard to imagine in our day and age, you know, you go to the doctor and just get this stuff taken care of, right? I mean, this is a, a medical condition called... Um, uh, let me see, I have the word written down here somewhere. Uh, menorrhagia. And again, this, it's, a, it's a treatable thing today, but for this woman, uh, she tried. She tried treatments. Look what it says. Now, a certain woman, verse 25, had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things 
from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Some of us know that feeling. You go to the doctor and you think the doctor's going to help you and actually it gets worse. And when, you, when it's as a life or death matter, I mean, you'll do anything. She uh, exhausted her savings account and her HSA and her husband's, you know, retirement, whatever it was, exhausted it to try to get healed, spent it on doctor after doctor, and someone would give her a suggestion, oh, here, try this doctor, try that doctor, and, and this gynecologist, and, and, and nothing. In fact, Luke, by the way, is a doctor, and he's a little nicer. He just says she spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed. But that's, you know, Luke's a doctor. Mark is a little more harsh and says that she had uh, suffered. Actually, they didn't make her better. They made her worse. And maybe some of you have left, left the doctor's office feeling that way. I'm just getting worse, not better. She had depleted all of her resources trying to fix her problem herself so she could have her life back. Over 12 years, uh, she had depleted everything and instead found herself just worse. When she heard about Jesus, I mean, again, heard about him for the first time, likely, um, this guy that was healing people, uh, she began to think, if this is what he can do, I hear about his healing, I hear about people coming to him. She came, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So she had uh, hatched this plan. She said, verse 28, if only I can touch his clothes I shall be made well. So that was her plan at home. That was her plan at the end of hope. Uh, now, I, I've, if I can, there's, there's a crowd around him. I don't know how I'm going to get to this guy. I don't want to get in the way. Imagine self-esteem really being an issue for this woman. I mean, imagine having any kind of self-esteem when this is your life. So she doesn't want to make a big deal. She doesn't want to impose. She, does, she just wants to sneak in and slip in unnoticed. And she just knows that if only I can touch his clothes, and there was a superstition that, you know, that there was healing, the clothes of a healer could bring healing, and so she thinks, just if I could have some touch point with him, that, that I could be healed, and so she, uh, she does this, she sets out to find him, she goes, she presses her way through the crowd, tr- just probably horrified, uh, just knowing that she's not supposed to be there, but this is her last chance. This is the only thing that'll help. And she presses her way, and she just she manages to reach through the crowd somehow and grab on to the little. He had probably had a prayer shawl, one of those uh, the shawls with the little strings that hang out of the bottom with the ten knots tied in them uh, to represent the commandments. And so he, she just grabs that and touches it. He said, "Only I can touch it. I can be made well." And immediately, verse twenty nine says, "The fountain of her blood." was dried up. Immediately, the, the capillaries, the arteries, the, the, the blood flow constricted, and the bleeding stopped. And she knew it, and, and maybe you've experienced that. I don't know if some of you maybe have experienced a healing in your life. I know my wife has at some point uh, in the past been to a prayer meeting, had prayer, and received a healing, and she knew it that day. There were many times where she would say, you know, it's not God's time yet for me to be healed. But that particular meeting, that particular time, she was prayed for, and she just knew it right then that she'd been healed. It was from a back issue that she had struggled with. And so sometimes she just knew, this woman, she just knew, she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. So healing uh, came to her, but it came from somewhere. And it didn't come from where? It didn't come from Jesus' clothes. 
And that's what Jesus is going to point out. That there was nothing special about the clothes that Jesus was wearing. So Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? I mean, come on. Let's, there's hundreds of people around you, Jesus. Now, so Jesus stops. They're on their way to where? Jairus' house. Why? His daughter is on the cusp of death. They're on their way there, and Jesus gets interrupted by a woman who has the nerve to touch him. And so he says, all right, who touched me? You think he's a prima donna like that? You think he's just like, you know, some, uh, all right, somebody touched me. That's going to cost you. You think that's the way he said it? We certainly know that's not the intention. He's not, Jesus isn't a germaphobe, like icky about people touching him, like maybe some of you are. Who? somebody touched me. You know, like, we've got to have, you know, it's amazing how we have to plan out how the seats in here are set up because people don't like to have, sit too close to each other because you might actually touch someone you don't know. I mean, that could never happen. So you know, people are icky about that, but that's not Jesus. He says, who touched me? Because this was a different touch. And Jesus perceived that he knew it. A lot of people were touching him. They said, Jesus, come on, you're crazy. Everybody's touching you. They're all touching you. And he said, no, this one is special. There were a lot of people that touched me sort of accidentally or casually. But this woman touched me intentionally. She reached out for me. And he knew that. And so he stops the whole train and says, we're not going anywhere. Now, imagine Jairus at this point. You think he's freaking out a little bit? Think he's like, come on now. We're going somewhere. Now, some of you, after service... You know, you come up and talk to me, and we got something to, to do together. And I say, okay, hey, walk with me over here to, you know, to, the, to the fellowship hall. And by the time we go from here to the door, I've been stopped five more times. And this sort of ministry is like that. That's life is like that. You're on your way somewhere. You've got a plan, and then something interrupts your plan. And you don't like it. We don't like interruptions, do we? We've got, we got a schedule to keep. We've got a place to be. But, hey, listen, sometimes that interruption is the main point. It's just you didn't know it yet. So this interruption is not an interruption. But Jairus thinks it is. He looks around and says, Who touched me? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. The whole, the whole multitude is thronging you. And he looked around and he kept looking around to see who had done this thing. He's not going to budge until he identifies the perpetrator of the touching Reminds me of the old Bill Cosby routine. Stop touching me. Stop touching me. Some of you are going, who's Bill Cosby? But he wants to know. He wants you to know. He wants me to know. He wants her to know that it wasn't his clothes that healed her. He wants not just a passing fast food healing. But he wants to look her in the eye and talk to her. So he looks around, and the woman notices. He, he, Jesus is going, um, excuse me, any, who touched me? Who was it that touched me? And she, if she could crawl in a hole and die right there, she would. I mean, she does not want to be noticed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she does not want any attention to be brought to her. She's not supposed to be there. Anybody who's touched her has been made unclean. I mean, she has gone against social custom just to get to him. And so she just wants to curl up in a hole, and Jesus is now calling her out. 
And the woman, verse 33, says, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Uh, Luke tells us that when she saw, she could not be hidden. That was what she wanted. She wanted to be hidden. When she saw the jig was up, she was, she was sold out. She, just, she came before him. She kneeled down before him, and she told him the whole truth. Look, God already knows what you've been through. God already knows what you're doing, what you're up to. And I'll offer, for years, I offer invitations. Hey, look, today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day that God, want, God will forgive your sins and, and usher you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light into a whole new life. And, and I just want to say, hey, come on down front. And that's like, come down front, you know. So I'll offer an invitation and no one will come forward. And then after the service, three people will come up over here and go, oh, I heard what you were saying, Pastor, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I want to accept that. I'm like, well, why didn't you come? Down? Oh, I don't want anybody to know. I mean, that's a, like attention. I don't want attention to be brought to me. So you know the feeling. If I pointed one of you out today and said, hey, you, come down here. Let's tell everybody what you've been up to. Let's tell everybody all the problems you have. By the way, no one, unless this happened, we would never have the story. Because no one knew why she was there. No one knew she did it until she begins to tell Jesus what happened. Now, Peter's listening, and Peter tells Mark. This was the story. And that's why we get it recorded. But nobody would have known what happened. And so Jesus wants us to know. So she kneels down before him, and she tells him the whole, you can tell Jesus the whole truth. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. He's not going to, ca- if you come to him, he will never send you away. He will never toss you out. If you come to him, you can tell him the whole truth. Isn't that comforting to know? Like, you know, even your therapist, you hold back some truth. You know, even inside you got secrets. You can tell Jesus the whole, and she tells him the whole thing, the whole story. And he said to her, look at verse 34. Only time it's written in the New Testament this way. He says to her, daughter. Doesn't call anybody else that in the New Testament. And now who's listening to this? Jairus is listening to this. Jairus is right there. And what's wrong with Jairus? Not himself, but it's his daughter. His daughter who can't come and touch him because she's lying at home. Who he's, so he's going on, on her behalf. This woman reaches out to touch Jesus. It's not Jesus touching her. It's her touching him. And he says to her, daughter. I wonder if that rang. into Yeah, daughter. Hello, Jesus. My daughter. Daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. He didn't say my clothes made you well. He says your faith. If ever there was a woman who could have lost trust and hope in humanity and anything good ever happening for her, this woman who'd been to doctor after doctor, who'd had her money taken from her, who had, it was just worse off, I don't trust anybody anymore. I ain't trusting nobody. If I'm in this on my own. It's me, myself, and I. I'm going to fight for myself. That's it. I don't trust anybody. She could have said that. But she came believing. She came with confidence. She came trusting. And that was the touch that Jesus felt. And we learned he felt power go out from him. You know, it was, it was, Jesus actually physically felt depleted as he would heal. He felt the power leaving him to go into some, it has to come from somewhere. And the power leaves him and goes into her and he feels that. And that's why he's looking around. That touch of faith, I don't know how you came in here today. 
don't know how you come in here every week. She didn't just show up because the crowd was there and, hey, let's see what's going on. She didn't show up just to be part of the in crowd. Or She came with purpose. A lot of people came just casually, you know, kind of, well, let's see what's going on. Let's be part of the crowd. You know, they weren't there the way that she was there. Everything, anything and everything that will happen in your life spiritually will happen because you trust God. That's the key. Every time you read through, I, he, he sees when we saw the guy lowered through the roof. Remember, his four friends lowered him through the roof. And, Jesus, and it says, when Jesus saw their persistence, this is when he saw their faith. Their faith was demonstrated by the persistence. This woman's faith was demonstrated by what she was willing to go through to get to Jesus. Now, we get a cold on Sunday morning. I'm like, I don't think I can make it to church. I mean, the, and, and I don't know that that says anything about faith. Now, now, again, you get a cold on Sunday morning, we want you to stay home. We're, we're okay with you staying home. But some of us will make any excuse not to be here. And that, whether you like it or not, speaks of your faith. And some of you will make any excuse to be here. To be in the Word. And that speaks of your faith. And that speaks of your wholeness and your healing. Whether, you know, again, I'm not saying this physically uh, speaking, but spiritually speaking. Because it's not all about just the physical healing. This is, when he says, your faith has made you well, has made you whole. It's the, it's the Hebrew equivalent of the word shalom. The, the, your faith has, has given you wholeness. And that's what faith does. It gives you wholeness. Whether, you know, whether you're physically healed or not, that spiritual wholeness is what is at the core of this. And he says, go into peace and be healed of your uh, affliction, your scourging, your, the word for whip or a scourge. This is thought of as a scourge from God. And he says, you are now rescued. And can you imagine, like, her walk home? Can you imagine the feeling of freedom? Some people say when they get saved that the world looks different to them. Maybe you remember that when you got saved. Just all of a sudden, the trees were greener, the sky was bluer, just things were different. And, And for her, everything is different. So while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Oh, I knew it. Jairus would say. I, begin, I imagine he begins to get angry. We're too late. And the words, you, some of you know this. Some of you have, have, have been in this type of experience. You've, you've lost loved ones, uh, maybe children. And so Jairus hears the, the word that they come from his house and say, hey, Jairus, I'm sorry. It's too late. She passed away. And at that time, you guys know, the world stops. Everything goes into slow motion. And all he hears are those words, your daughter is dead. And nothing or everything else is just a blur as, as, as he looks around and he's caught up in that moment. And Jesus knows that. So they say, look, Jairus is not even listening anymore, but they say to him, don't trouble the teacher any further. Hey, it's no use for him to come. Because the idea, whether you're Lazarus and his family or whether you're, there's three healings, three people raised from the dead by Jesus in, in the Bible. And, and this is one of the three. And the idea is that death is permanent. Death is a permanent situation. So she's dead. Don't worry. You know, just, it's too late. 
And Jairus, I don't know if he hears that, but Jesus knows. And look at verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, so Jesus hears this. He knows what's going to happen. He knows Jairus is going to be completely and utterly deflated. And he says to him, I don't know if he said smack him on the face first or something, get his attention. He says, Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. And the word is keep believing. It's a continuous action. Don't start fearing, but believe. Be believing. And the same word is to you and I. If you live based on your emotions of fear, that will take you into really bad places. That will take you into really bad actions. And so he doesn't want fear to, to uh, deflate Jairus. And so he tells him, just keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. And that's my, what I want to say to you, just keep believing, keep believing. We'll see why in a minute. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So Peter's, I mean, excuse me, Jesus is there, and he takes his inner, the inner sanctum, the, the core group, Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. So at a funeral in those days, you actually hired mourners. That was the custom. When you had a funeral, you would hire people to come who were just really good at crying. Really good at, they were really loud and obnoxious, and they played bad music, and they could cry. They could just let loose emotionally, on cue. And that sort of set the tone for the funeral. So Jairus, if you were poor, you would have at least two flute players. They didn't play beautiful flute music. They played ugly, horrible music because it was a funeral. And it's meant to be a downer and, and to set the tone of grief in the house. Jairus was wealthy, so he probably had a lot of hired mourners at his funeral. You'd think that there'd be enough normal ones that you wouldn't have to hire, but that was their their practice. So Jesus came in and said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They're like, well, who are you? You know, what do you do? You come in here, you know, you roll in here with your little entourage and you tell us all she's sleeping. She, you know, that's going to be damaging. Like, why would you say such a thing? And they actually laughed him. Verse 40 says, they ridiculed him. They laughed him down. You ever say, you ever say, tell somebody you believe in Jesus and you just get laughed down? Oh, you loser. How can you? Yeah, that's just, that's, that's old stuff. We don't need that anymore. You must be an anti-intellectual. You know, just, you're crazy believing in that stuff. And then people will laugh you down. So they laugh Jesus down. But when he had put them out, almost literally thrown them out, just like when he threw out the, the turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple, it's that kind of force. He took the father, now Jairus, first he's called Jairus, and he's called the ruler of the synagogue all the way through, but now... Mark says he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and he entered where the child was lying. He took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this is Aramaic. Mark records this for us in the Aramaic, the uh, native tongue of many. Jesus, multilingual speaks this uh, in a familiar ancient tongue. Talatakum, uh, again, the translation, little girl, I say to you, arise. He doesn't have to do a big deal. He doesn't have to make a big show of it. He just says to her, and literally, arise is wake up from sleeping. Get up. Wake up. Now, obviously, she's 12 years old. If she was like 17, this would have been a much harder miracle because waking a 17-year-old from sleep is a lot more difficult. I mean, I don't know this from personal practice or anything. I just, it's a, not that I have teenagers 
or anything like that, but uh, just imagining that that must be what it's like. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. Now Mark tells us. He uh, demonstrates for once and for all that he has power over death. And the word sleep is used to discuss death in the Bible because sleep implies a temporary situation from which you wake up. Now, for her, this is a bummer because she's been in the presence of the Lord. And now she's called like Lazarus. You know, Lazarus, come forth. Do I have to? I mean, I like it here. But sleep, I can deal, I can understand sleep. Like that makes sense to me. Because at the end of the day, you know, ministry is full days. And, and sometimes I'm going from 6.30 in the morning till 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. And when my head hits the pillow, you don't have to rock me to sleep. I am ready for bed. I want to go to sleep. Because I know I'm, cause I'm tired and I need refreshing. And then I wake up the next morning, my eyes open. I have no idea how much time has passed. I know I had some funky dreams. Uh, but I... There's no sense of passing time. There's a sense of my eyes close. I go off to sleep, and then my eyes open the next morning. And, and that, to me, is a great picture of, of the, what the Bible calls, uh, what we call death. The Bible calls it sleep. Now, some, we sleep. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep during the last part of the sermon, but we shall all be changed. Uh, and so it's a great picture. So she happened to wake up once again on this side. She will die again. And so, for, so again, the idea here is, remember, death is not a permanent situation. Everybody wakes up on the other side. Some wake up to eternal darkness and death. And some wake up to eternal life. Some will close their eyes in this world and open them in a world devoid of God, truth, light, and love. Eternal punishment. Eternal darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And others will close their eyes on this side and maybe in a hospital room, maybe at home, maybe in a car uh, and, and wake up on the other side with that first vision of Jesus Christ and the light of his face saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. And so, whether it happens on this side, uh, whether, you know, again, we, well, why, you know, I prayed, we prayed. I mean, I've been with people in, in these moments, and you're praying, oh God, you know, wake them up. And it doesn't happen. It can be really disappointing. And God wants you to know, hey, don't be afraid. Be believing. Just because they didn't wake up here doesn't mean they didn't wake up. They woke up on the other side, fully healed, new body resurrected. Jesus has power over even life and death. Do you believe that? And they were overcome with great amazement. Uh, another version says they were astonished with a great astonishment. They were blown. They weren't laughing at him anymore, were they? And listen, by faith, people may laugh at you now. The time to determine your eternal state is not after you die, but before. And people may laugh at you now, but there won't be laughing then. 
So I don't know where you stand with that, which is with your eternal life and death, knowing, I don't know who else, where could they have gone? Who else has power over life and death? Who else has power in the spiritual realm except Jesus? And so he's the one you have to go to for power in the spiritual realm and, and over life and death. They were amazed, and he commanded them strictly that, that no one should know it and said, to, uh, said that something should be given her to eat, just proving, uh, again, that uh, she's uh, alive. She's every bit alive, just as you and I will be every bit uh, alive um, when we are resurrected. So that is what Mark has to tell us about the life of Jesus. These two stories, uh, Jairus coming on behalf of his daughter, the woman coming on behalf of herself, Jesus touching the daughter, the woman touching him, both of them uh, issues for 12 years. Jesus is not always as predictable as we'd like him to be, is he? But he's always good. And he's always uh, the great healer, the great physician. So if I can invite Phil to come up. Um, now you have to go and figure out what to do with all this, right? You can choose to live in fear and, and let fear and let your emotions guide your life. Or you can choose to believe. And through believing, that opens a window into all that God has for you. Some of you say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. But the Bible says you won't see it unless you believe it. It's an opposite thing. So if we could all stand, we'll close with the final song, chorus, something. Lord, I just pray for anybody in here uh, that doesn't know you. I just want to invite you to to, uh, reach out to them, Lord, during this closing time. That they would hear and, and understand and perceive that what was said today was for them. A parent a child, a woman. That Your word tells us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but you made us alive. And you saved us, and you forgave us, you clothed us, and you gave us a new life. So if there's anybody that still stands outside of that life, I pray, Lord, you would move them to accept your offer, accept wholeness and health. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. During the final song, if the Lord so moves you, I'll be standing over here by the steps. Please come down. Uh, and, and despite fears, and, uh, and today can be the day of your salvation. Amen.